We're on the air. Welcome to Stuck in the Attic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yep. Um, let me give you a proper introduction. Uh, from the Rocky Mountain region of Colorado, a very influential person on Instagram and very important member uh, for my sobriety and for the rest of the sobriety community, uh, Seiya, welcome to the show. You have a uh, Instagram account? Yes. Um, again, thanks for having me. Uh, it's under s.nelson42. Mm-hmm. Now, I, uh, I really... I asked you to come on because when I see the transformation and just the positivity and the videos you put up are second to none. I see not only just the words being spoken, but the feeling behind it. And you have a very motivational, positive attitude. Even on the the videos that I see where you speak from the heart, where you may be having a little bit of a struggle, which we all go through in life. It, it seems like it's so genuine and I know from the comments, I see people get a lot out of it and it definitely helps my sobriety on a daily basis. So I just wanted to say that right off the bat because it's, you're a beautiful, sober human being, beautiful human being, but you also happen to be sober, which definitely fits right into my you know lifestyle. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I think I, I started to share those um, mostly because a woman uh, gently suggested, which really meant I should do it. Um, <laughs> she gently suggested that I use my voice instead of just words sometimes, because I, I think for a lot of what I see and a lot of social media in general, um, can come across as fake or rehearsed or just words out there. And, um, I don't live like that and I don't live my sobriety that way. And I, I have no, I have no problem sharing a struggle. That's the only way that I feel like I can grow. And I know other people are going through some of the same things that I have. What I see from you is not a facade. You know, it's not a phony front. Uh, I see genuine optimism and um, not only optimism, but not a lot of people go on social media and talk about the struggles that they go through. And even if they do, they kind of beat around the bush, as they say, with it. But people that are like us, like you and I and, and some of the other members of our, our wonderful community, we need to get this shit out, you know, because mm-hmm. it needs to be said because it does definitely take that sting off what we're going through. And it's all in our head. I mean, 100 percent. Right. Um, very rarely do I have outside occurrences harm me. It's all how I take it. I, right. I mean, I'm in one piece when I come home. I could now what I do in my head is a different story, you know. Hence the <laughs> name of the show, "Stuck in the Attic," because I'm stuck in my head all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, you got people out there who are not afraid to tell their story to whoever wants to listen, because, like I said, if you help one person. I think if I help one person in life, then my purpose has somewhat been fulfilled. I mean, yeah, I have my own selfish reasons for, you know, pleasures and, and wanting things and luxuries, you know, and a lot of most of the stuff that we have in life, we want, we don't need, you know, but Mm -hmm. these are niceties that we can afford because we're not spending on booze or, you know, funny powders that keep us up all night. Um, (laughs) and these are, um, the experiences I have now, I actually remember, you know, and, and unfortunately it's a double-edged sword. You, you have to, uh, remember things and deal with your emotions on a normal human level instead of drowning them in alcohol, but you also get the joy of, or should I say ability to pursue a, a better way of life. And that's where those wonderful memories come in. And, and I mean, and I could see from, from, where you live, you know, that, that whole Rocky mountain region for me, that's like surrounded by God and nature, everything that that's Mm -hmm. a dream for me. I I definitely would like to live out there, but uh, you didn't always come from there. You, you were a transplant. You actually came from the windy city, correct? Yeah. So we moved here. I grew up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. Um, we moved here 
in August of 2014. So um, I'm the fifth of six girls, had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I kept busy with basketball, volleyball, softball, played sports all through high school. Uh, really just a lot of, you know, I think coming from a family of six girls, there's inevitably going to be some drama, but Oh boy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your dad must have had a full plate every day. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. 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 People would always say to him, uh, you know, how is it having so many women in your home or something? And he would tell him, I asked for a lot of women in my life. I just got it a different way. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. So we moved here um, in August of 2014. My sobriety date is April 10th of 2015. So you can tell in that time frame that it was a quick eight month uh, downward spiral, really. Um, we moved out here only really knowing my husband had an opportunity with a friend that he knew for a long time back in the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. And we moved out here only knowing him and his wife. So our older two kids, I have three kids. Um, our oldest is 18, daughter is 14, and our youngest is 10. So, um, I, I wasn't accountable per se. I mean, of course, looking in hindsight, I of course was accountable to so many more people than I, I acted that I was. But the, the, our older two could walk to school every day and I would take our youngest who was four at the time and we would go to the liquor store almost every morning and he would get a sucker when we checked out and we would go home and just hang out there and and I would drink for most of the day and uh really wasn't um the best I think I you know it really was that unintentional intentional geographic we we had the opportunity to come on an adventure and um I think I it all hit me when I got here how alone I was how easy it was to isolate um and, and that really affected me in early sobriety because again, I knew no one here. So I really had to reach out in order to not be alone. I guess you could say that you kind of built a new life from scratch, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it, it's a, one thing I try to hang on to and try to really share about is that I, I had to really be completely broken down, I think, physically. Phys- I, at, towards the end of my drinking, I will never forget this. I remember walking past the bathroom mirror and I held up my shirt so I wouldn't see my reflection. And I remember thinking, I, I don't know who that is anymore. I, I, was, I weighed almost, I weighed about 55 pounds more than I do now. And I just, I, I didn't know who that was. And I think that that all started a couple years before we moved here, but really just escalated uh, pretty quickly when we got here. It's, um, it's you know, I was thinking when you're saying you didn't know anyone. Um, and, and for me, friends wise, when I got sober, I didn't know anyone either. Yeah, I lived in the same area exactly in the same place actually mm-hmm. but the friends that I had were not the friends that I would be keeping going forward in the sense that I wouldn't be dealing with them on a daily basis or at that point it wasn't let's be honest they didn't even want me around um, right. they were moving forward and you know up and out of the area and uh, they were getting careers and families and they still did their thing but I was just you know hanger on at that point and most people I'm still friends with in a, in a way maybe through social media but most of these people that I was friends with growing up even though I'm friends with them now I'm not that daily I don't talk to them I don't really have too many um, dealings with them as far as there's there's no uh, I didn't even go on any kind of a class reunion I'm 42 now and I don't even think we had one so most of these people I haven't seen in a very long time except for again social media so uh-huh. the point I'm trying to make is I really got just all new friends not to throw those guys 
uh, men and women aside, but they understood that I had to distance myself to, to clean up. So in a way, even when you do, you have to break off, you have to change everything, you know, people, places and things. And the people, um, a lot of times are some of the old heads that you used to hang out with that in my case, I grew up with. So, right. It was like, I, I went to a whole different life, a different, I didn't move from, from the suburbs to, to the uh, mountains. Um, quite frankly, I don't know if that would have even had an impact, but it, it could have, in your mm-hmm. case, it really worked out. But you said it was like a force. You didn't, it wasn't, it didn't sound like you, you were really escaping. You, you, it sounded like you had an opportunity to, to leave and you did it. And it just right. so happened that you, you know what, maybe going to Colorado and seeing the beautiful world that we live in made you have that, that ultimate downfall quick so you could recover. Maybe God put you in that situation and he's like, now I'm going to really teach you a lesson so that you can enjoy where you're living because it's got to start sometime instead of dragging you and bouncing you off the the floor and hitting rock bottom, you know, like I did. Uh, I kept hitting bottom and bottom and bottom and, you know, uh, life support. And I was in a medical induced coma at one point and, uh, you know, turning blue at another point. And it was just like, I can't hit any more bottom. Uh, I, the bottom doesn't go any farther down. So, right. you know, for me, I had to learn that lesson. It sounds like you got that lesson in like eight months of just, I, I'm guessing pure terror. Yeah. So I, I think one of the, one of the big things I, I, you know, a, a lot of people have a story similar to yours. And I think a lot of people have a story similar to mine. I, I don't have a lot of the yets. I've never been arrested for drinking. I've never gotten a DUI yet. And I I know that there's a lot of terms that are overused or cliches or all of that, but I, I think it's important, especially when you're early in recovery, to know that whatever elevator floor you get off on is okay. You don't have to go further down no. to be one of us or, you know, you don't, you don't have to get a DUI or heaven forbid, kill somebody in order to get woken up. Um, I, the beginning of my sobriety, uh, my sister was in town. One of my sisters was in town from Virginia and my husband had gone to pick her up at the airport. It was Thursday, April 9th. And I don't even remember her coming to the house. I was, I was already gone. And I remember waking up at about three o'clock in the morning and I was sitting up on the couch and I looked over and she was sitting next to me wide awake and she just had tears in her eyes. And, and I looked at her and I said, what, ha- where, what are you doing? And she said, you, you really scared me. And I think that that moment um, was really that, that whole trip, I think was you know, I've never confirmed it with either one of them, but it felt like it was almost an intervention between my husband and her. Um, or it was just a coincidence that she happened to come out that weekend. But the next morning he called me outside to the driveway and had a large bag of empty bottles and said, you have a problem. You need to get help. You need to go to rehab. You need to see a counselor or I'm going to take the kids and go back to Illinois. And that, that was that, uh, that was that moment for me. I I will, I will never forget looking into his eyes and thinking you will never take my kids from me. And that was the beginning. I called, um, I called a million places that day. I, I knew something was telling me in my heart that if I went to rehab or went away, that my kids would be gone anyway. So I called, um, the local AA chapter and got in touch with someone and she said, do you really think you have a problem? And I said, I, I'm sure I do. It's clear to everyone else. I don't know why it hasn't been clear to me. And I haven't taken a drink since that day. And I went to 65 meetings in my first 32 days, mostly because I needed it. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because he had filed for divorce at the end of May. So we were still cohabitating and it was really difficult to be in the house. You know, I can't imagine the emotions and anger and frustration and all of that, that he felt, but I 
I couldn't get, I, I couldn't be around that and stay sober. So, um, one of the things I remember in early sobriety was going back to Illinois three months sober. And I remember sharing with a bunch of women before I went back saying, I can't go back there. That's, that's where I really drink. I just can't do it. And they said, first of all, this is still two months away. Take a deep breath, just do today. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't not think about that. And I had to have tools in place. I had to have, you know, a plan. And thankfully my mom, um, my mom has always been very supportive, but my stepdad, um, my, so my parents got divorced in 2004. Um, my mom and stepdad have been married since, well, they've been married for eight years now. So since 2012, and he has texted me every morning, honestly, 1983 days in, he's probably missed 10. That's great. And he, yeah, it's really amazing. It It really is. It is. He, and, and he and I used to drink and do shots of fireball. He would send me home with a road soda when I'd bring the kids home. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's just, you know, it's, it's really, it's just amazing to me because I had a great relationship with my dad. Um, but I have such a great real relationship with my stepdad and I, and I couldn't imagine I, I, you know, I, my dad passed away five days before I had a year of sobriety. Um, I'm sorry, but at least you had a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I pulled into the gym parking lot. I saw that I had a missed call from the Milwaukee police department and I knew what it was before I even called back. And I just asked them, can I talk to the medical examiner? And they were like, wait, what? And I said, I just want to find out if he was sober. And so the medical examiner called me back and she said, yes, there was nothing in his system. And I just, it was like, that was what I needed to hear in order to completely break down. Went home, left the gym, went home, called out of work for the day, got the kids to school. And I went straight to a meeting and I, a meeting I was at almost every day. And I just cried. And I knew that that was where I needed to be. And, and I remember, you know, my dad died sober. He, I have never seen him. I never saw him take a drink. Um, and all I could think about at that moment was I just want his books. I just want any literature he had. I want to know things he highlighted that were important to him. And I, and so I went back two weeks later, we had his memorial. I went up to his apartment, got everything I could, went back down to my mom's house and I left everything outside because you know, they were divorced. I was trying to honor and respect that part of separating the two of them. And I picked up one of his big books and it was a second edition book and out falls a card. And I opened the card and it said, you know, I'm always here for you, friend. I love you, Saya. And this is the first time I've ever seen this woman's handwriting ever. And it's the woman that I was named after and my dad had met in recovery. Oh, wow. And I didn't find that out until about two and a half years ago. I, I don't know why I didn't know that before, but I, I, it, it was one of those moments where I realized I'm going to be okay. You're I'm, destined, you're destined for sobriety. Right. And you know, as much as I say and practice truly every single day, one day at a time, that's all I can do. But I, I knew just, I just had this almost ease come over me where I knew I would be okay. I just knew if I could get through this sober, I'll be okay. And then honestly, in the next, um, probably within the year or year and a half, our oldest started to get into some trouble and he was in and out of, um, he was in and out of placement. He was in and out of, uh, treatment centers. He was, getting arrested. We were in court. I was in court almost every week. He was missing for three days at one point and I was sleeping in my car looking for him. And I remember I, I got a message from someone that said, I know where he is. Here's the address. And I ran back to my car and I went to start it and it wouldn't start. And it was a newer car. I don't know why it didn't start, but I remember sitting there and I just, my hands just fell open. I started sobbing. I couldn't even I couldn't even take a deep breath and I, and I just said, okay, 
if I'm meant to find him right now, I, I need some help. I can't do this alone. And I turned the key over, it started, I drove right there and I followed him through the store while the police blocked both entrances and they came behind him and arrested him. And he didn't see me until he turned around. And all of those things with him, I, I truly only got through because of the community that I share this journey with. It really is. I, I, you know, you talked about friends and growing up and um, friends you have now. And that was one of the hardest things for me when I went back to Chicago was who am I going to choose to see? Mm-hmm. And I've lost, I've lost several of those relationships. And I, I, you know, I don't even know if lost is the right word because if we were really good friends for 20 years, they, they wouldn't leave my side during this. And yet at the same time, maybe we were just drinking buddies and that's okay. I, again, I can't control how other people feel or what they say or what they do, but I can control how I react to that. And if I take it personally, or if I let it go, that's, that's up to me. So I, I think part of, um, part of one of the best gifts of sobriety for me is the friendships I have today. Honestly, I don't know that I have two or three, maybe friends who actually drink and they don't drink around me. But my community today is built up of women and men who I've met in sobriety. And it it really is, um, looking back in hindsight, it really feels like I was meant to get here completely fall apart and completely rebuild myself because I had to get to that point in order for something to change. It's amazing because we spend so much time, especially I know in my case, and what I like, I'd like to call it um, a narcissistic bunker. You, we build and fortify that bunker that we live in on a daily basis. And as long as we get our little package delivered, whether it be drugs or alcohol, uh, or we go out and get it and bring it back, we all lose ourselves in that that dark corner of our mind that we've right. just built these superstructures around, you know. And uh, it's almost like a bunker, like impenetrable to anything. You have to come out of it in order to get help. Nothing can get in, and it's like. Uh, it's like any other, you know, problem that's deep rooted, any addiction, it, it, unless you recognize it, you're never going to come out for a better life. And, and it's hard. And you went to Colorado and I believe truly that when I hear your story, God really wanted you to have, you probably said, this is where you're supposed to be. You know it, but you're going to have to get better. And before you get better, you have to recognize there's a problem and you're going to have to go through some shit before right. you see, you know, the sunrise again. And you're going to have to come out of that narcissistic, you know, train wreck of a castle you built and come out of it and realize that it's just nothing, but it's, it's a horrible way to live. Um, there's no good that can come out of it. There, there's no happiness in there at all right and your life is just slowly dying off and it doesn't ever you know it's amazing because it doesn't start that way it starts as fun but then it it turns like a like a snake and it bites you and it hits hard and like in my case i must have gotten bitten a thousand times um i want i want to talk about now for me my childhood was pretty normal yeah, broken home when I was 12, but my, my dad stayed around. Um, and you said your, your parents had gotten divorced. When did you really start start getting into... First, I'd like to, to know when, when you started really partying or indulging more than usual. And when did you have that moment where you're like, oh my God, I might have a problem. You know, some people recognize it right away and don't give a care like me. And think that, you know, tomorrow's another day. I'll get to it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Some people don't recognize that for years and don't think there's a problem. And some people, like I said, like me, I just, 
I just hid it away, you know, into another yeah. compartment of my life. Yeah. I think for me, um, when I graduated high school, I went to school at a community college and started working full time. And then slowly work started increasing and school started decreasing. So I worked full time since I was 17. And I think um, when I had our oldest, I was 20 and I was a single mom. I met my husband when um, our oldest was two months old. So um, I think for me in those years there, again, being able to look back with a clear, you know, completely fogless mind, I'm able to see that every single time I drank between that time, I I don't remember where I went. I don't remember waking up. I don't remember how I got there. And frankly, that's terrifying to me now to think that way, especially when I have a kid that age. But for me, um, so then I had our daughter at 24 and our youngest at 28. I think in those, in those eight years, I didn't really drink as much as when I was really towards the end of my drinking. I think I was, I was still working full time. Um, you know, I took care of the kids. I think for me, it all really started to go downhill. Uh, when I, I was laid off in 2009 and then found out I was pregnant with our youngest about a month later. So I think right around that point, I had just gotten back to school. And I think for me, I all of a sudden felt like I lost who I was. I didn't know who I was. I wasn't working full time. All I was, was being a mom. And I criticized every piece of that for me. And that felt like that wasn't me. And I started to really lose my identity and lose the parts of me that I thought really were doing okay. And then, um, you know, from about 30 to 33, when we moved out here, um, I think I, there were so many times where I overindulged so much quicker or I would go out with friends and stay out till six or seven in the morning. And I just, I didn't see a problem with it. He was home with the kids. I don't care. I get to go have fun. I've, I've put in the work of being mom all day. Yeah. I can go out. But I mean, you know, it's, I was talking with another friend about this and it's really difficult to say some of this stuff out loud because even though I've shared and I've admitted it a million times, it it still hurts that that's how I behaved. But I, you know, I, I didn't know any better at the time. I really think that I thought that I was doing okay. And so when we moved out here, um, I think that I just, I was completely isolated. I could text my mom and sisters in a group chat and they would think that I was fine. I didn't have to see anybody. I didn't have to, you know, look at anyone face to face. I would walk down to the kids' school hammered with a drink in my hand to pick them up. And no one knew because I didn't get, I didn't let anyone get close enough to really know who I was because I think I didn't know who I was anymore. And it was probably around Christmas of 2014. Um, I think, you know, it, it just got to the point where I was waking up in the morning thinking, okay, there, there's something going on. I, I, my heart would be racing. Like it felt like it was going to jump out of my chest. And I, you know, I remember sitting there thinking, if I don't do something, this isn't going to get better. I'm, I'm not going to get better. And so I would take a drink and then I would, it would just stop. And I, so when the, when, when alcohol started to become my solution, I think was really when that, that quick downward four month all in, you know, I think as, as an addict, I think I, and several other people, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone, just have that natural addictive personality, whatever it is, I'm going all in. Yep. And that can work out really well in a lot of cases, but when it comes to your drug of choice, it, it doesn't. No. 
and when I really started to use that as my solution, I'm feeling shitty or, you know, it's been a long day or my husband's working tonight again. I'm going to get the kids to bed and drink. And then suddenly it would be, I'm going to get the kids dinner and then I'll have a drink or I'm going to wait until noon and have a drink. You know, being able to look at that stuff and reflect is really where all of the work started for me. Um, In early sobriety, I remember I was about two weeks sober and I was sitting in a meeting and I said, um, it was about step one. And I said, well, I know I'm completely powerless. I I absolutely 100% agree with that. But I don't really know if my life is unmanageable. And I remember there was there was like loud laughter from the women in the room. And and I remember thinking, what the hell? This isn't funny. I don't think that I'm unmanageable. And at that point, I was going to see a um, substance abuse evaluator, a parental responsibilities evaluator, um, to determine if I had a substance abuse issue and if my kids should go back to Illinois with their dad. And I remember saying that out loud. And this woman said, now tell me what the hell is manageable in your life right now? I had no money. I had no job. I had nothing. And I still couldn't see how unmanageable it was. I just couldn't see it. And I think I needed to hear, thank God, I needed to hear that truth from other women. Like, wake up, get out of your head, see how unmanageable it is. And I was in there. I would sit with my arms crossed with this look on my face like I was ready to beat the shit out of you. And one woman came up to me one day and she said, can you just give me an idea of when we can anticipate you letting that wall down just a tad and getting rid of a little bit of the anger? (laughs) (laughs) And I I laughed. Resentment. All right, there it is. (laughs) But... But that was it. I was so, I think that I was so angry that I got caught, that I didn't get to figure this out on my own, that I didn't, all of those times where I thought, okay, I've got a problem. I need to fix it. I didn't, this wasn't on my terms. So when I finally, really, it, it was like that moment where I realized I can't be here in this room wasting my time or anyone else trying to help me if I'm here for my kids or if I'm here for a marriage that is irretrievably broken I I won't stay sober and that's what I try to share a lot today with a lot of women who I talk with is you know if if you are in this for anything other than your own health and well-being good luck to you because I know and I really i always try to speak from my perspective only I can't I don't know what someone else is doing what their life is like what their situation was but I do know that we have the common solution I know that because I was shared that solution early on and that's the only reason I'm here and if I had stayed in those rooms for anything other than my own well-being my own health me wanting better I wouldn't be here I know I wouldn't be here today and I think it took that that tough old school old timer verbiage to me to really get it and to really be able to change and I think that's been really a catalyst for me in sobriety is being able to share with other women you know it's tough it's tough to be in our world right now, especially these last six months, everything is seems to be related to alcohol. And, you know, if all the mommy needs wine or mom deserves a drink or I felt all of those. And I think that's what resonates so much with me to counteract those is because I lived those. Okay, you're right. I deserve a drink. I deserve a drink. Who did... I deserve to live a good, healthy, happy life. And then my kids reap the benefits of those. It it cannot ever be the other way around. If I put anything above my sobriety, work, my marriage, anything, I'm screwed. 
And I know that it, it happens. There are days where life just happens. And all of a sudden I feel off and I'm quick to react and I'm not pausing when I'm agitated, you know, screw that. I'm going to react. And then I'm, what's different today is that I'm able to stop myself and go, okay, I know what I need to do. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to call a couple friends. I'm going to journal. Journaling has been a huge part of my sobriety. Just being able to write out and then reread what I think and feel is such a therapeutic thing for me. Well, it's triple because you say it to yourself in your mind, then you read it as you write it, and then you can read it again back to yourself later on. So you're getting it like three different forms, sight, right. memory, you know. It's not right, and, and I can see where I was kind of nuts with <laughs> writing some of it, you know. Okay, again, like you said, most of the thoughts or worry or fear or anything are all made up in my head. It's not going to happen. Those things aren't really going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, I I try to be positive about sobriety because, and, and I try to share so much about my story and about living sober. You know, I really kept it all in for about two years. And um, I, I don't know, something just switched. I think it was... I was invited to speak up at a rehab here in Estes Park. And I think that was almost um, a freeing moment for me where I thought, okay, I can do this. Yeah, I can actually share my story. There's 250 people here who I don't know, but they all need to hear one thing I have to say. And I think that that was the first time I really shared openly and honestly and without a fear of judgment. And so when I share today, I, you know, I, I posted the other day in a mom's group because truly every day there's two or three things related to alcohol. And I saw one that had a juice box and it was the outside of a juice box with a wine cup in it and a straw. And it said something like, can you tell this is wine or something like that? And it just, those things just make me irate. And I know that I can't change the world, but I can change what I choose to have around me. And I can share my stuff because I know there's someone else struggling. And so I just posted and I said, you know, it was Thursday. I had 65 months. And so I posted and said, this this is my story. I see this all the time. All I ask is that you be mindful in your real life and on here that there are probably a lot more women, especially women. I mean, it it was eight months before I was truly almost dead. And there are a lot of women who struggle with alcoholism and are afraid to speak out because of judgment. It was always looked at as a male problem. Right. Until, you know, some women came forward because men kind of it was almost normal it's hard to say but alcoholism was almost like hey as long as you bring home that paycheck on friday you can do whatever you want yeah right right and it it's such a feeling of shame and judgment and and i can't live that way i lived that way when i was drinking i'll be damned if i'm gonna live that way in sobriety i didn't work this hard and come this far to not help other people. That's the only reason I'm here. And when I shared this, it, it was, I was a little nervous for the reaction because the group is honestly so many posts about alcohol. And I, I got um, about 25 messages by the end of the day saying, I needed to hear that. I could really use some help. Can I call you? Can I? And that, that is all. I, that's all I need to hear to know that I'm doing the right thing. I don't, you know, one, one thing that I, I remember someone saying to me after I posted one of the videos, they were like, holy cow, you know, that video has been viewed 400 times or something. And I said, honestly, I, I don't share things so that people will like me. I share because I finally like me. I share because I know that there are people who were exactly where I was. And the only reason I'm able to be here today is because people shared with me. And, you know, it's it's that line between um, 
the self-care piece for me and self and being of service to people you know it's like what you talked about when you were saying um there you know there's something in it for me and it's funny how that mindset changes in recovery to yeah there is absolutely something in it for me when i help someone else because i get out of my head i'm able to share and be of service i'm not thinking about you know what the shitty committee is telling me about my parenting or my work or my job or my relationships i'm focused on what someone else needs and there's honestly not a greater feeling i got a text from a woman earlier today saying do you have a minute i need to talk through something and we're going through the steps together and and i replied she she sent another message and said it's not an sos don't worry so i called her and when we hung up I mean, my heart is so full when I hang up after those conversations. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything special to get to this point. I just believed when other people said, you can do this, you can do today and then wake up and do tomorrow. I just believed them. I believed all those keep coming back and one day at a time, no matter how cliche it was. And those kept adding up and I started to figure out the why behind my drinking. Why was it a solution? What was I trying to numb out? What was I trying to drown? And the second that I stopped pouring poison into my body, I really started focusing on getting healthy. And, you know, honestly, there is not one day of sobriety, including every day of all the stuff with our son, that I would trade for a day drinking. There's just not nothing is comparable I agree and even when I feel really bad I know that uh, yeah okay you want to trade one for one perhaps I could find in all the shitty days that I was you know self-centered and you know narcissistic and made sure I looked good on the outside but on the inside I was just a mess I could probably find a halfway decent day and all that maybe but we're not trading day for day. You know, it's it's not right. a day for day trade. Even when someone says that, because you got to remember when, when, even if you're not particularly drinking at that time, your mindset is still that of an alcoholic. And yeah, when you when you have a bad day and you're and you're in recovery, it sucks. But you know what? What did you do? You went to a meeting after you learned of your father's passing. You go out there and you help someone. You know. And you talked right. about that wall. That wall is that wall I was telling you about. There's a lot. We, we usually surround ourselves with a lot of them, you know, and and you have to breach. It's like for me, it was like an onion. You know, you have to keep breaching until, you know, at, at one point I'm sitting there and I'm hearing people from the outside knocking on the wall and breaking it down. And it wasn't until I started, you know, knocking those walls down and trying to meet them in the middle, at least halfway that I could learn about myself and I could, you know, take time to to really share why I did what I did and at that point I didn't even know anymore I just did what I did because that's all I knew that's all right. I knew was pain you know and right. and now I know I don't know pain I know joy so I go out and I help people and and doing this podcast on uh, a Sunday night helps me tremendously this just made my weekend my week I mean this doing this podcast I get to hear you know for me it's one-on-one someone telling me their personal story of triumph misery and then uncertainty and self-loathing to joy triumph optimism help helpfulness you know yeah and absolutely that helps me tremendously and then i put it out there and i share with a bunch of people and they're like this is amazing it's like a right. meeting in a box to just tap into it whenever you want not even it's like a biography because or autobiography because um you you have like a, a an ample amount of time to really get that message and i can feel it as every every show i do every time i have someone on it's like you get stronger as you start to get looser and and the show starts to take on a different dynamic it's nervous at first for for you know me and my guest and then you get that that calmness and you really start to hit hit the good points and really start to to bring out that that positivity i can hear in your voice that 
you start the, you, the way you're talking now you're not just saying the words you're like I'm done with this shit I'm going to help someone and that is not something that people do when they were happy where they were that's something that people do when they're frustrated and they don't want to live that way anymore and they want to do better in life not only for themselves but for the world at large and that's what I hear from you that's why I wanted you on yeah it I, you know it, it's I think the greatest gift, you know, we, we talk a lot about amends and um, making amends was really difficult for me. I um, put off making my last amends was to my ex-husband and I put that off for about a year and a half. And I remember my sponsor kept saying, you, you have to do this or you will not truly feel free. You are still hanging on to this. You've got to do it. So I wrote it out in an email. I sent it to her. I sent it to a couple girlfriends in recovery. And I said, I want your honest feedback. And all three of them replied and said, do not use the word sorry. All it is is empty words. Say something like, I apologize for when I did this. Because you know you did it. Take accountability or it's never going to change. And, you know, there's been a lot of really hard things sobriety that I honestly didn't think I would get through and I remember thinking in those times okay happy joyous and free that's all I that's all I want to be but I even if I wasn't happy or feeling joyous in those times I knew that if I kept working this if I kept doing this deal I would always be free always regardless of what was happening in my life or around me and so many times I've, I've thought, okay, the happiness is going to come back. The joyousness is going to come back sometime. I know it. Just keep going. It's going to be okay. And I, 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 there was a time where I thought, I haven't thought about drinking through any of this. And I, and it was, you know, when all this stuff was going on with my son and I had this like epiphany that was not even a thought in my mind as the solution anymore. My thoughts were get to a meeting, call friends, journal, read, reach out, go for a walk, go for a hike, get to the gym, get out of my head. And that is truly, you know, the physical transformation for me, and I've shared this before, I'm sure you've read it, but the physical transformation for me has been a lot of hard work and a lot of daily work, but truthfully and completely honestly the biggest transformation has happened in my head it had to that's I I you know like you said I could have put on this facade forever that everything was going to be okay that I looked okay on the outside kids were okay everything was all right no one knew what was going on so I didn't have to change anything because no one knew how bad it really was and when I got sober I had to and I was going through all this parental responsibilities evaluator, all this stuff, I had to get recommendations, letters of recommendations from people who were on my side saying that I shouldn't lose the kids. And I remember sending it to a couple friends and the first friend replied right away and said, how bad were you? And I, that question doesn't lose, doesn't leave my mind ever because as bad as I was, might not be as bad as someone else was, but it was as bad as I needed to be in order to get better. And that was my answer to her. It just came out and I don't know where it came from, but it didn't come from me. And that's one of the biggest gifts of this program and and of sobriety and of recovery and the community in general is that I didn't have to be as bad as someone else in order to want better for me. And I had to want better for me in order for anything to change. You know, everyone in my life, my mom, my sisters, my ex-husband, his whole family, they could say until they were blue in their face what a terrible person I was, that I would never stay sober, that I had a drinking problem, that my kids didn't deserve to be with me, that I didn't deserve to have my kids, any of that. And I could have believed that. Or I could have believed that I could do better and that was really you know that's one of the biggest pieces I feel like of my story is I I heard so many of those things at the beginning and I could have just listened 
but I listened to people who had been where I was and had a better solution. And I just keep listening and doing and practicing the tools that they have helped me rebuild in my toolbox. You know, it, it's honestly, you, if you had told me five and a half years ago that I would still be sober, I, I, I would have laughed. I remember people coming in and saying, you know, when they'd say any anniversaries and someone would say, oh yeah, I've got 10 years. And I would laugh out loud and people would look at me like, what is wrong with you? But I laughed because I could not, I, I knew they were lying. There was no way someone could stay sober for more than a year. And that was part of where I had to start really believing in myself and believing that by doing the work, everyone around me will benefit because I was turning into who I was supposed to be all along. And it was that easy. You know, when I, when I break it down, it was that simple for me. For me, you know what it was? When I walked in, I heard all these people being sober for such a long time. It it was my mindset. I didn't believe that people could actually change. Therefore, these people must be kind of white-knuckling it. And right. at the most, someone could hold off from here. That's the way I looked at it. I didn't know there was that deep, deep change. You know, I looked at it as something more superficial, like, Oh, they, they must just be showing how tough they can be and staying away from the, from a drink. And, and they're doing this by all these mystical coping skills that they've, they've mastered. Again, it's like, it's like manipulating their own mind into thinking they're not an alcoholic and staying away from a drink. And then it was inevitable. You were going to lose it, you know? Yeah. And speaking of losing things. I hear a lot of people have what they call high bottoms and I never bought into that because what I learned what happened with me is the first thing I did was I lost myself like you did, Mm -hmm. like we all did. Now I think what a high bottom drinker does is realize that he or she has lost themselves and gets help before they lose materialistic things. You know, let, let's be honest. Uh, we don't need all these things. We don't need it. You know, yeah, we need a roof. We need some somewhere to live. But we go out. And we buy a house. We buy something. We possess. We lose possessions. You know. And mm-hmm. some people, I think, it just takes longer to realize that they've already lost themselves before they lose these possessions. So some people that get in, uh, example, high bottom, you already know there's a problem. You lost yourself. So you get help. And then some people don't really recognize the fact that they lost themselves. And yes, they go through this until they're under a bridge and it's cold and they finally have that aha moment that, oh my God. I've been like this for a long time. It, it, it you know, homeless. I, I'm pretty safe to, to think that when you get to that point, I don't think that it just happened that day. It's a long right. process to lose all that that those wonderful things that you you've accumulated in life, you know. But it's the it's the more it's more of a way of losing yourself, you know. And I did that way before I actually surrendered. I didn't care because I thought I could like find myself again. Like it was magical. You know, I always envisioned myself in like a old, you know, fighter plane from world war two. And I was in a nosedive and I was going to pull up one of these days and I was going to be fine. But until I realized, you know, that I couldn't and I just was fine with hitting the ground. And that was bottom. That was hitting the ground hard. And I got to the point where I didn't care anymore, you know, and that's maybe where it became different you know i didn't have a family i didn't have children um i still don't have kids i i don't have any i didn't have anything underneath me to be responsible for and i think that made me go to the extreme lengths that i did before i actually got my head out of my ass but for some people it just works out differently you know you were meant to have children and you were meant to show them that you can become a different person if you want to be and that's going to be a lesson to your kids don't don't doubt it for a second your kids are going to remember that 
and they're going to look at you as an example and they're going to realize mom changed and they're going to look at all the rest of the world yeah. and all these other people who haven't changed and they're just going to feel you know pity sorry for them hopefully they don't judge them but that's what we do we show other people that it can work and that's why we have these anniversaries you know and that's why we have speakers come in and say how long they got because someone's right. going to one of these days say oh my god it really can happen and it's happening to me and on a daily basis I'm going through it and it's wonderful and you know what I lose some some stuff but it's still wonderful you know and and then I see mm-hmm. you out there and I see you out there and I know you're 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 doing well and and I I I catch the clips of you you know giving very lessons in sobriety quite frankly to, to the community and then I see you and you know God's country out there just enjoying life you know whether it's you're working out or you're in the mountains or whatever and it's a pretty tight knit community you know there's a lot of people who are kind of on the outside but a lot of people post a lot of stuff and keep in contact with each other and you see and you see people just just grab that better life and and just make the most of it and that's what turns me on to certain people on there yeah there's a lot of people that say they're sober then there's a lot of people who show you they're actually living it you know saying and doing two different things and that's where the facade thing you know comes in you show people you're doing it it's actions not words right 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 yeah it's always funny to me when um even at work or uh, with kid with my kids when people will say you know well what if someone finds out you're sober like i honestly i didn't give a damn what people thought about me when i was drunk or stumbling all over or showing up to one of their school events just reeking or coaching their soccer game completely hung over i didn't care then why would i ever care now that people see that i'm in recovery and i always share my youngest was in first grade and i had about a year and a half of sobriety and his teacher called me at the end of the school day and she said you know i i just had to tell you about a funny interaction something happened we were missing a marker i asked the class where it went and he raised his hand and he said i took it i really liked it I'm sorry and he gave it back and she was like, "Wow, where did that come from?" <laughs> and he said, "My mom talks about rigorous honesty a lot." Uh, I would yeah. Tell you, I I would tell you what program she's in, but it's anonymous. <laughs> and she's like, "I just had to tell you, it was so refreshing to see his face and how proud he was of telling the truth." You know, he was he was owning up to what he did and she's like, "I just hope he takes that going forward." And that you know that's I sent a screenshot or a, a picture to my oldest on Thursday and I said, you know, hey, I'm 65 months sober today and he replied and said, "Wow, mom, I'm so proud of you. I'm I'm so proud of where you and I have both come. I couldn't I, I'm so grateful for all you did for me. I love you." And I read that and I was I was at work and I read that and I was like <gasps> I like I couldn't catch my breath and that's what it is for me it's it extends from from my heart and my head to my family and to anyone to anyone who reaches out i i can give 5 minutes of my time if it's going to truly help save a life and as dramatic as that sounds sometimes that's really yep. all it is you know someone needs to we're, hear we're just gonna, one bit up. of hope and that's all i needed to hear <laughs> I have been sober for a little over 13 years. God bless one day at a time. You rank you right up there with one of the most powerful speakers I've ever heard, man or woman. And I just want to say it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Absolute pleasure. Is there anything any parting wisdom you would like to lay Thank on you. the community Thank and you. those who wish to just have a better life? Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Um, you know, I think all of this being said, uh, unless I truly wanted 
sobriety, unless I truly wanted a different life, nothing was going to change. And anyone can tell anyone that they need to do something different or that they've got a problem. But until you really feel it and choose to change, every day is a choice. Every day I make a choice. When my alarm goes off to get up, to go kick my ass at the gym, get my kids to school, do my best at work. Every day it's a choice. And I choose to live this life today because it's so much better than what I was doing before. And I know that there are people who feel like they're right there and there's not a better day. You know, I don't know what was important about April 10th for me, but it was truly the beginning of a new life. And I I really got a lot of living any other way. And uh, I'm sure I will definitely hear people um, telling me the same uh, when they hear the show. And I would just like to say it's been a pleasure and I will definitely get in touch with you. And uh, you can hear this on Apple and Google and most of the platforms out there for for podcasts. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Have a good evening, okay? Bye. Thank you. Thank you for having me.